Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 14th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is um, part 23, I believe, of explaining to seed line. Most of most of what I feel are the really important things I have to say, I've already said probably three, four, five times in the first 22 chapters, the first 22 installments of, of this series. I do hope to um, one day gather all of my notes and actually write it out. And, and um, that's probably going to take some time, especially since for a good portion of these programs, I didn't write notes. That's why they're not posted at Christogenia. For a few of them I did, and, and hopefully this winter I'll be able to focus on that. That's my plan anyway, It is to get all of this in writing and into some sort of um, two-seed line, general two-seed line commentary. I would like to do that. It takes time. In the last segment of this series, I attempted an analogy between scripture and, and another topic which I was at one time familiar with, computer programming, in an effort to demonstrate that in Yahweh's creation, we have constants and we have variables. And and understanding the scripture, we must learn to discern between them. In computer programming, a constant is a data type of which the value does not change. A variable is a data type with a value that can change. For example, in a computer program that totals a supermarket order, a constant might be the tax rate. The tax rate doesn't change in this state anyway, in a particular state, where the variable might be the amount of tax for any given order. The tax rate would not change from one order to another, but the tax amount for every different supermarket order would be different. In the Bible, we have a good race and we have a bad race. I know everybody's going to say, oh, there's a lot of races out there. Not really. There's really only two races. The men from the good race cannot be bad, and the men from the bad race cannot be good. We discussed that at length last week, talking about the the fruit and the trees in analogies made by both John the Baptist and Christ himself. As Christ tells us, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Period. Words of Christ. No exceptions. John the Baptist tells us that the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. For Yahweh God already knows the good from the bad. These things are constants, even though we, being feeble men, cannot always tell the data types apart before we taste the fruit. Once we understand the constants, we must understand 
that the state of any given man is a variable. The world is complex. Many good trees act like bad ones. That doesn't make them bad. That makes them in need of repentance, in need of hearing the word of God, in need of guidance, or in need of chastisement by God until they think about the need for guidance. They have an opportunity to repent and shall be punished if they do not. Many bad trees act like good ones for one reason or another, for one agenda or motive or another. But they always turn out to be wolves in the end, scattering the sheep. They cannot repent, and their fruit will always eventually betray their nature. Now, understanding these two, that these simple concepts will lead us to all sorts of confusion if we attempt to discern the meaning of scriptures without them, not understanding these concepts, we will never be able to figure out the Bible. Everything God created was good, kind after kind. If your seed is in you, you can't be bad. You may do bad things, and need to repent, but you cannot be bad because nothing God created is bad. It's that simple. Every corruption of God's creation is bad. There is no good corruption of God's creation. If you go outside of kind after kind, the fruit is bad. It can't possibly ever be good. Separate yourself from that fruit. Sadly, there are very few men who understand these simple concepts, and mostly because they have no love for the truth, and they choose to love the world instead. Everything which Yahweh created is good, and therefore nothing which Yahweh created can be bad. If something is bad, it is because it is from a corrupt tree. It violates the law of God. It violates the law of kind after kind. And corrupt trees exist because men rebel from Yahweh and follow the works of the devil, equated in both Jude and Peter, and in the Revelation with race mixing. In the message to the seven churches, what does God hate? He hates fornication. The fallen angels, what was their sin? According to the Apostle Jude, their sin was fornication, going after strange flesh. According to the Apostle Peter, their sin was equated with the way of Balaam, which was fornication, going after strange flesh. What did God hate in the message to the seven churches? He hated fornication. He hated those who taught the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to teach, to cast a stumbling block before Israel so that they would commit fornication. What did he tell, what, what did he tell Jezebel? What, what did he say of Jezebel in the message to the seven churches? 
the same message. The church at Suatira received the same message that they suffered that woman Jezebel who taught his servants, who taught the children of Israel to commit fornication. And therefore he would kill her children with death. If you have children that are products of fornication, repent from your fornication, put your children away. If you don't, you will suffer their punishments. This is the opportunity for repentance. Before the judgment, as Paul, as Paul of Tarsus wrote to the Apostle Timothy, some men send their sins ahead to the judgment. In other words, they repent of their sins before they face their maker. Some men don't repent of their sins, and they, they take those sins with them to the judgment. You want to be one of those first men, not one of those later men. In our first presentation of 2C line in the New Testament two weeks ago, we started with Revelation chapter 12 and the rebellion of the so-called fallen angels, which must have happened before the creation of the Adamic man. It must have happened before the creation of the Adamic man because the great dragon, the devil, and Satan of Revelation chapter 12 is directly associated with that old serpent of Genesis chapter 3, which is also representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree, as we have explained probably too many times, in these past 22 presentations of this series, this tree must be a race of people, which resulted from the rebellion described in Revelation chapter 12. Many of this race of people must be in Judea at the time of Christ, because Christ exclaimed in Luke chapter 10, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And no Don Spears, Satan did not get a ladder and climb back up. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I said in reference to Matthew chapter 12 last week, I believe, talking about scatterers and gatherers and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that the things Christ says when he speaks are all connected. He doesn't flit from one topic to another changing his subject like, well, well, like a babbler. These things are connected. Satan falling from heaven and the serpents and scorpions, which the apostles had, had, had been given power to tread upon, all the power of the enemy, those things are related. 
For that reason, Christ often called those who opposed him in Judea, those whom he said were not my sheep, he called them a race of vipers, a race of serpents. He too was equating them with that old serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Not because they emulated the serpent. That wouldn't make them a race. They might be a a, a nest or, or a den, but that wouldn't make them a race. Not because they too rebelled against God. He called them a race of serpents, a race of vipers, offspring of serpents, as John the Baptist uses that term in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. These men were bad, and they were offspring of serpents. Their parents were bad. Their parents were bad. Their parents' parents were bad. Their parents' parents' parents were bad. All the way down the line to the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. If they were offspring of serpents, their parents must be serpents. If their parents are serpents, that's why Christ calls them a race of serpents. They were born evil. Their parents were born evil. Their parents were born evil. All the way back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. John the Baptist called them offspring of serpents, and so did Christ. It wasn't because they emulated the serpent. It's because they were genetically evil and opposed to God. Both John and Christ, in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3 of John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 12 of Christ, both John and Christ associated these offspring of serpents with bad trees in each of those places. Nothing Yahweh created was bad. It was a bad tree in the garden, but Yahweh did not take credit for creating it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He just said it was in the midst of the garden. He didn't say he made it. He didn't say he created it. Yahweh, like Clifton Emmerheiser likes to say, Yahweh created the, the horse, and Yahweh created the donkey, but he didn't create the mule. Yahweh created the white man. He didn't create the mixed-race mestizo. Don't blame your sin on God. The entire test of the book of Job was that Job did not blame God for what happened to him. We don't blame our sin on God. Yeah, sure, God knows ahead of time that we are going to sin. He has to because he is God. If he didn't know that we were going to sin, he couldn't be God. But that doesn't mean it's really his fault because when we sin, we agree to that sin. We consent to committing it. Therefore, we get the blame. David sinned a lot. David didn't say, 
God, why did you make me sin? David said, Yahweh, I'm sorry that I sinned. I repent that I sinned. David was repentant and took the blame, took the responsibility himself for his sin. So Yahweh can't be created. Yahweh can't be blamed for the creation of bastards. Yahweh can't be blamed necessarily for the creation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If that tree is really those fallen angels who rebelled from God, who lost their place in heaven, who miscegenated with all of the beasts, which the book of Enoch tells us they miscegenated with, and they created a corrupt tree. The fallen angels can be blamed for that. Yahweh can't be blamed for that. The race of beings that preceded Adam are blamed for that. It's not Yahweh's fault. Of course, he foresaw it. He foresaw it. We know he foresaw it because we are told that our Redeemer, the Messiah, was appointed before the foundation of the world. But that doesn't mean that we place the blame on him. We also saw in our last presentation, that in both Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 11, it is recorded that Christ informed his adversaries that their race, a race of serpents, was responsible for all the blood of all the prophets from Abel through Zechariah's. The only way that men in Judea at the time of Christ could be held responsible for the blood of Abel was if they had descended from the murderer of Abel, which was Cain. We then established from the epistles of Jude primarily, but also from to Peter, this can be made evident, that the false prophets among the people of Israel from the beginning were infiltrators. They weren't Israelites. They were infiltrators who were themselves corrupt and the products of corruption. Jude and Peter also equated these infiltrators with the fallen angels and with all of the corruption of the ancient world, represented by the way of Cain, the error of Balaam and Sodom and Gomorrah, all of which had fornication at their root. This race of serpents was not contained in Judea throughout history. That would be a really naive view of history. However, history focused on Judea, biblical history around God's people Israel. And this race of serpents is heavily represented among the population of Judea at the time of Christ. And these are the serpents and the scorpions. And all the power of the enemy, which Christ gave his disciples authority over during his ministry. Now they're, they're still in, in Jerusalem, but there's more of them in New York. 
discussing these things last week, we presented parts of Revelation chapter 12, the epistle of Jude, and the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jude, and I don't think we mentioned this last week, Jude indirectly establishes that the parable of the wheat and the tares is describing the beginning of the world, the beginning of the Adamic society, and not, as many people mistakenly insist, the advent of Christianity. Since the false prophets among the people were certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, and he attributed to them the corruption of the ancient world. We also explain how Peter agrees with and corroborates with these statements by Jude. Both Peter and Jude describe how these same corrupt people were among the men of their own time. And therefore, they must be that same race of serpents, the tares of the parable, the scorpions and serpents which the apostles were given power over during Christ's ministry. All of these things can only be understood in harmony once it is understood that there were two races in the Garden of Eden, but only one of those races was from Yahweh. The race, that, the race of Adam was created by God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a race which resulted from the rebellion of the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. This is one of the things kept secret from the foundation of the world, which Christ revealed to us in his word, in spite of the fact that most men still don't understand. The world cannot understand. In order to understand how these people who are supposedly Israel could be something other than Israelites at the time of Christ, one must go back into Scripture and history. And examine the events which befell Israel from the time of the kingdom of David and even before that and all the way through to the time of Christ. We will do some of that tonight. We will not, of course, have time to do all of that here in one evening. However, we can present enough evidence to prove our thesis. We left off with these presentations last week with Malachi chapter 2, and that is where we shall begin tonight, with Malachi chapter 2, with verse 8. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Yahweh is talking to the priest of Jerusalem, to the prophet. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways but have been partial in the law. Now this next verse, verse 10, is that this is a dialogue 
and Yahweh is using the next couple of questions to represent the response of these people who he's addressing here. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 11 is Yahweh's response to the prophet. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved and is married the daughter of a strange God. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. It is certain from the language of his prophecy that Malachi was a prophet of the early Second Temple period, after the return of the remnant from Babylonian captivity. He may have been a witness to the corruption of the priesthood which was temporarily rectified in the days of Ezra, Ezra chapter 10, for example. And he may have wrote these words in part for that reason. However, Malachi's prophecy is also, from beginning to end, a clear messianic prophecy and was applicable in every way to the time of Christ, when the priesthood was also corrupted. Understanding this, we see that Malachi's prophecy was applicable to the past. Judah married the daughter of a strange god, speaking literally of the patriarch, and we have the accounts in Genesis, and of the present, his own present, what was going on in Jerusalem as he wrote, and of the future in Jerusalem, of the time of Christ. As we saw in our last presentation of the series, in the story of Susanna, the prophet Daniel professes that there are priests in the Babylonian captivity who are the seed of Canaan and not of Judah. Daniel preceded Malachi by perhaps a hundred years even a little longer. We shall recall this passage of Malachi again later when we discuss John chapter 8. One thing which Malachi is prophesying is the attitude of those very Judeans opposed to Christ as the dialogue is recorded in John chapter 8. And Malachi gives us the reasons for that attitude. But first... We must present evidence of some of the corruption of Jerusalem in earlier times. The prophet Ezekiel wrote nearly 200 years before Malachi. And before I read from Ezekiel chapter 16, let me say, people might think, well, this is two seed lying in the New Testament, the title of this program. But you can't understand two seed lying in the New Testament until you understand the prophecies of what was wrong with Jerusalem in the Old Testament. 
and some of the history. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And as for thy nativity in the day thou was born, and thy navel was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Ezekiel, this passage is rather esoteric, even though the, the, the attestation is, is plain. Jerusalem, thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Yet Ezekiel does not explain exactly how Jerusalem could be associated with the Canaanites. However, if we examine his contemporary, Jeremiah, a much fuller picture is drawn, and we'll portray part of that picture with Jeremiah chapter 2, and we'll read, for the most part, the whole chapter. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Yahweh. Remember when Jeremiah wrote, most of Judah had been taken away. At the very beginning of the 7th century B.C. by Sennacherib into captivity. But the inhabitants of Jerusalem were left. Most of Israel was already also taken away. Thus saith Yahweh, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals. When thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in the land that was not sown, Israel was holiness unto Yahweh, and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend, and evil shall come upon them, saith Yahweh. Hear ye the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. This is addressed to all Israel, present in, evidently present, present in Jerusalem or not. Thus saith Yahweh, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is Yahweh that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, to a land of deserts and of pits, to a land of drought, and of the shadow of death, to a land that no man passed through, and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land, and made my heritage an abomination. The priests said not, Where is Yahweh? And they that handle the law do me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by bow, and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith Yahweh, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Kittim and Sea, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing, 
has a nation changed their gods, which are yet not gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, and be ye very desolate, saith Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Several years ago, I wrote a paper entitled Broken Cisterns after this passage, citing a passage from Proverbs that shows that the word cistern was used as an analogy, more or less, where a man was warned to drink water out of his own cistern. It's very clear in the proverb that that means that he should marry people, marry women of his own race, and that he would have abundance if he did so. Not marrying women of his own race, one creates, a man creates a broken cistern that can hold no water, a well without water, as Peter makes the analogy, a cloud without water, twice dead because it has not the Spirit of God, as Jude makes the analogy. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the war of Yahweh, the war of propagation for Adamic man, kind after kind, that his wife should be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And when we violate that law, we hew us out cisterns that hold no water. Broken cisterns. Verse 14, Jeremiah chapter 2. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they make his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the children of Nahath and Tephanes have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto myself, under thyself, and that thou hast forsaken Yahweh thy God, when he led thee by the way? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what is thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken Yahweh thy God. Race mixing with the Egyptians, with the Assyrians, and they were Adamic people. And Yahweh did not want the children of Israel to join themselves to those nations to drink the waters of the river, the Euphrates, to intermingle with the people of the Euphrates. Nope. If we read the promise, the, the prophets Amos and Hosea, they were the sins of the children of Israel. To seek the trade, the riches, the gifts of the other nations 
rather in, in international trade, ostensibly, international relations rather than seek Yahweh their God. That leads to race mixing, diversity, multiculturalism. It always does. We see it today in the world around us. 150 years ago, it started out as global trade. Now, we're overrun with aliens and intermarrying with them. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore, and see that it is an evil thing, and bitter, that thou hast forsaken Yahweh thy God. And that my fear is not in thee, saith Yahweh of hosts. For of old time I have broken thy yoke, and burst thy band. And thou said, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree, thou wanderest, playing the harlot, playing the whore. Yet I planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, a good tree. How then art thou, thou turned into the degenerate plant? of a strange vine unto me, a bad tree. That's the second analogy in this chapter. That's the second allegory for race mixing in this chapter. Is one more. For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh that Yahweh God can't wash off sin. You can't wash off the sin of fornication if you're a product of fornication, if you're a bastard, if your people are race mixed. You can't wash off that sin. That's the only sin that can't be washed off. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balim, the fertility cults of ancient Palestine. Sexual fertility. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary, traversing her ways, a wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffs up the wind at her pleasure and her occasion who can turn her away. All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her mouth they shall find her. Withhold thy foot from being unshod. Some of these are seemingly sexual innuendos, that's for certain. And thy throat from thirst, but thou saidst, there is no hope. For I have loved strangers. That line corroborates our interpretation of the prior three race-mixing allegories we have pointed out. The broken cisterns, the sin that can't be washed off, and the noble vine that became a degenerate plant. This line vindicates our interpretation of those three verses. There is no hope, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. 
for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye have all transgressed against me, saith Yahweh. In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see ye the word of Yahweh. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore, my people, wherefore say my people, we are lords. We will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore hast thou taught the wicked ones thy ways. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee. Because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt, as thou wast ashamed of Assyria. Yea, thou shalt go forth from him, and thine hands upon thy head, for Yahweh has rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. And the scoffer may say, well, aha, it's the, the Judahites who are responsible for the blood of the prophets. And while that's true, that doesn't mean that they are going to bear that responsibility. Because, as Jude explained, as Peter explained, false prophets among the people had infiltrated ancient Jerusalem had infiltrated the body of the children of Israel. Those false prophets are outsiders who infiltrated and who are responsible for these things. It is they who will be held responsible for these things because they are the works of the devil. It is they who are held responsible for these things in Luke 11 by Yahshua Christ when the blood of all the prophets is laid upon that race of serpents in Judea. Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 23. They were not Israelites. They're going to be held responsible. Just like the crucifixion of the Christ. And Peter laid that on the hands of the Judeans in general, of the population in general. Yet we know from Scripture that the people who rejected Christ are not Israel and that they would bear the blame for that. They would be held accountable for that. His enemies are held accountable for that, not his people. Those people who rejected Christ have all, by now, 
been mixed with these bad things of Judea, which we will get to shortly. So even though today in America, this nation commits many sins, it's the infiltrators that we perceive, those who have usurped our government and our politics, they are the ones who are leading the nation into those sins. And the people are, for the most part, helpless. And we have been for over 100 years. Now, that's the will of God, but we have the same situation in ancient Jerusalem. It's no different. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh. After that, Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then Yahweh said to me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good. And the evil, very evil that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. And again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is important to, to, to understand this scripture um, in depth, in detail, let's put it that way. Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah. So there were good people in Judah. A lot of well, well there are, there's a sect of clowns in Christian identity that insist there were no good people of Judah, but there certainly were. Then to the carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good. And I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Those people must have eventually been established in Christ. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now this concerns the people of Judah of Jeremiah's time which were descended from those who were inhabiting Jerusalem during the Assyrian conquests of nearly a hundred, of, of at least a hundred years prior, who were not taken captive when the greater part of Judah was taken away by the Assyrians. Here we see that there were good people of Judah who must have been pure Israelites left among the population of Judah in Jerusalem long after the Assyrian captivity, and they would go into the Babylonian captivity. The returning remnant of the Second Temple period were among these good things of Judah, for the most part. Verse 8, And as the evil things which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely, thus saith Yahweh, 
So will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah. This is important to understand in detail also. So will I give Zedekiah. He's going to give Zedekiah to the evil things. So will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for the hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, so they be consumed from off of the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. Not so that the evil figs could be consumed. The evil figs weren't going to be consumed. Those Judahites given over to the evil figs would eventually be consumed. There are no good Jews. Zedekiah and the princes of Judah were not evil figs themselves. Yahweh said, so will I give Zedekiah and the princes of Judah to these evil figs. So the evil figs were there, and they were in Jerusalem. There was a whole basket of them, just like there was a whole basket of good figs. Zedekiah and the princes of Judah would be given over to the, evil, to the evil figs as well as the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and the Judeans who had fled to Egypt. So all of these people of Judah ostensibly became no better than the evil figs to which they were given over by God. The disobedient people of Judah the princes of the nation who were most responsible for the apostasy, and additionally, those who remained in the land or went to Egypt when they were instructed instead to submit to the Babylonian captivity, were all to be given over to the evil figs and then to become a reproach and a curse wherever they were driven. So we must ask when this could have happened. To answer that, we have the words of Christ concerning Jerusalem in Luke chapter 21, concerning the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Christ is making a prophecy because this is maybe 40 years before that destruction, almost. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land. And those in the countryside must not enter into her, because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those having conceived, and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth, and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken captive away into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens, until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. Note the similarity in the language of Christ to that of Jeremiah 24, concerning the fate of the bad figs 
the people that were handed over to the bad figs, it can be demonstrated that this is what indeed happened to the people of Jerusalem who had all been among those or descended from those who rejected Christ up until the crucifixion and thereafter, and this all happened to them in 70 AD. It didn't happen before that. This is only half of the story for the reasons behind the corruption of Judea at the time of Christ. To offer it in summary, this half begins with the understanding that Judah married the daughter of a strange god. Therefore, a portion of the tribe of Judah were of Canaanite stock. These are identified in the genealogy of Judah provided in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 from verse 21. The sons of Shelah, the son of Judah, were Ur, the father of Lekah, and Leadah, the father of Marashah, and the families of the house of them that wrought fine linen, of the house of Ashbia, and Jachin, and the men of Koziba, and Joash, and Seraph, who had the dominion in Moab, and Jashubilaham. And these are ancient things. These were the potters and those that dwelt among plants and hedges. That's actually pretty funny. There they dwelt with the king for his work. The King James Version translators committed a, a silly error in that passage because plants and hedges actually should have been rendered as place names. Netaim and Gadara which were towns in Judah. In addition to these, there were also Kenites in Judah at the earliest times. In the genealogy of Judah provided in 1 Chronicles, we read at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 2, I'm sorry, from verse 55, and the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Tiratites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukathites, these are the Kenites that came of Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. And biblical history proves that out, that these people were indeed Kenites, and they were the scribes in Judah. So we have a portion of the tribe of Judah, which is Canaanite, and we have Kenites, who were the scribes in Judah. And we wonder why Jude wrote that these people these infiltrators, these false prophets amongst the people were infiltrators related to the angels who left their first estate, likened to the way of Balaam and the, and the way of Cain. That's why Jude wrote this. That's why Jude, Jude understood who was responsible for the corruption in Judah. That's why he wrote that epistle in the manner in which he did. That's only half of the story of the corruption of Judea in the time of Christ. But that's also why Christ told the serpents, the race of serpents, the children of Cain, as he labels them in John chapter 8, that they would be responsible for the blood of the prophets, for the blood of all the prophets from Abel all the way to Zechariah. Even though the children of Israel were used by these infiltrators, 
to commit these sins, and they still use us today to do the same things. Go check out your local neighborhood cop, your jailer, your prison guard. I know. I've been on both sides of the fence. I can say these things. I can judge these things because of that experience. They're working for the Jews in Washington and in New York who have this country in a state of tyranny. Is it their fault? Or is it going to be blamed? Is God going to hold his people accountable? Or are the people of God here, as we demonstrated in the, in the, the ongoing series on the book of Romans, which we are presenting on Friday nights, that the people of God are here to learn what sin is. It's God's enemies who are going to be held accountable. He will destroy all of the works of the devil and all of the Adamic race will be preserved. Romans chapter 5. The other half of the story of the corruption of Judea in the New Testament, and these things will converge in the epistle of, in, in, in the Gospel of John, lies in the history of the Edomites, who moved into Judah and Israel in large numbers after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the Israelites. This is prophesied by Ezekiel in his 34th chapter, where it says in part, thus will I make, this is Yahweh speaking to, the, the, in this case he's speaking of the children of Esau, thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off from him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men in thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. This hasn't happened yet, by the way. This is the, the fulfillment of this is found in um, Malachi chapter 1 and also in Obadiah 17 and 18. This hasn't happened yet. I will make thee perpetual desolations and thy cities shall not return. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, because thou hast said, speaking to the Edomites, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. And he's speaking of the Edomites taking over the ancient lands of Judah and Israel. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will even do according to thine anger and according to thine envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee, Obadiah, 17 and 18. And thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, and that I have heard all thy blasphemies, which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us to consume. So we see that after the deportations of Israel and Judah, the Edomites had made both Israel and Judah their own. 
The Edomites had been allied with the Babylonians at the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. In 1 Esdras chapter 4, we read that among other things, Ezra had said to the king of Persia, verse 45, Thou also hast vowed to build up the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. This is verified in Psalm 137. Not all the Psalms were written by David. Not all the Psalms were written by David. Some of the Psalms were written by others, especially Asaph, and many of those the Psalms of Asaph, are Psalms of the Captivity. Psalm 137 is a Psalm of the Captivity. And it says in verse 7, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom, in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. The Edomites had taken over much of the ancient land and many of the ancient cities of Judah and Israel after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. Over 300 years later, when the remnant kingdom of Judea had waxed strong under the Maccabees in the mid-2nd century B.C., the Maccabees decided to forcibly convert to Judaism, to their religion, which can't really be called Hebrewism at this time. It can't be called the faith of Yahweh because it's a very corrupted version of the Old Testament religion by this time. If it wasn't corrupted, they would not have been trying to convert Edomites and Canaanites to their religion. So it must have been corrupted. There's no doubt. The Maccabees decided to forcibly convert many of these people dwelling in the old lands of Israel around them to their religion. From the period of the Hasmonean high priests of Judah, commonly known as the Maccabees, which began around 156 B.C., Josephus records battles by the early men of this dynasty, Judas Maccabee and his brothers, against the Edomites of Hebron, Marisa, and other towns in which Marisa was burnt. However, a couple of generations later, Hyrcanus, one of their successors, and descendants, chose to convert the Edomites rather than destroy them. Josephus records in Antiquities, Book 13, that Hyrcanus, from line 257, that Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa. Dora is ancient Dor on the seacoast. And Marisa, cities of Edomia, they were actually originally cities of Manasseh, in the case of Dor. I think Marisa may have been Marishah in Judah, possibly. And now Josephus is calling them cities of Edomia, fulfilling Ezekiel chapter 35, a witness to that fulfillment. Hyrcanus also took Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country. If they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans, 
and they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers for at least a couple of hundred years, that they submitted to the rite of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. Now, we love to quote that passage to prove our point that many of the Judeans were Edomites, but there's more. The Jews loved to say, oh, but they didn't stay Jews. That They eventually converted back and, and, and went their way. The Jews loved to say that, but they have absolutely no documentation whatsoever to prove it. None. They certainly did not merely go back and, and, and give up Judaism and go their way. And, and the histories of Josephus, if somebody actually reads them, bears that out. Later, in that same book of Josephus's Antiquities, we see a much greater extent of the conversion of the surrounding Edomite and other non-Israelite peoples to Judaism. Even though Josephus doesn't directly state it, it's very evident. And this took place while one of the successors of Hyrcanus was king, the high priest and king Alexander Janaeus. He ruled from about he ruled Judea from about 103 to 76 BC. A few years after he died, the Romans came and made Judea a subject kingdom. But this is 103 to 76 BC before the Romans. And I'll quote from line 393 of Antiquities, book 13. But Alexander marched again to the city of Dios and took it and then made an expedition against Essa, where was the best part of Zeno's treasures. And there he surrounded the place with three walls, and when he had taken the city by fighting, he marched to Golan and Seleucia. And when he had taken these cities, he, besides them, took that city which is called the Valley of Antiochus, and also the fortress of Gamala. And he also accused Demetrius, who was governor of those places, of many crimes, and turned him out. And after he had spent three years in this war, he returned to his own country. When the Judeans joyfully received him upon his good success, now at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians, the Edomians, and the Phoenicians. Now let me say that the Phoenicians were originally Israelites. However, when all the Israelites were taken away, the people called Phoenicians by the Greeks, let me put it that way, were originally Israelites. When all the Israelites were taken away, Canaanites, for the most part, along with some remnant pockets of Israel, but Canaanites, for the most part, had inhabited those lands. So we see that the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians, the Edomians, and Phoenicians. At the seaside, Stratos Tower, Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, Antidon, 
raffia, rhino calora. In the middle of the country, near to Edomia, Adorn, and Marissa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel, Mount Tabor, Scythopolis, and Gadara. Of the country of the Golan, of Golanitis, Seleucia, and Gabala. In the country of Moab, Heshbon, and Medaba, Lemba, and Aronis, Gelathon, Zara, the valley of the Kilikas, and Pella. Which they last, which last, meaning Pella, they utterly destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rites for those peculiar to the Judeans. The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria which had been destroyed. After this, Alexander, although he fell into a distemper by hard drinking and had a quartan agu which held him three years, yet he would not stop going out with his army till he was quite spent with the labors he had undergone and died in the bounds of Ragaba, a fortress beyond Jordan. If Alexander destroyed Pella because they would not convert to Judaism, we'll call it Judaism by this time because it's no longer the religion of Yahweh. If Alexander destroyed Pella because they would not convert to Judaism, we can be certain, especially from the prior testimony of Josephus concerning the cities that Hyrcanus had captured and forced to convert to Judaism, to Judaism, we can be certain that all these other cities that were not destroyed by Alexander certainly did convert to Judaism. So we see that all these cities contain Edomites, Canaanites, possibly some remnants of the Israelites gone off into paganism, possibly, and they were all converted to Judaism. Judaism. And for the most part, all of these people were of races mixed with the Canaanites, undoubtedly. So there's no doubt that most of the people of Judea in the time of Christ, although the, the, the true Israelites of Judea did blossom into a large population, there's no doubt that, that, that the Israelites were all over the place. Those who had descended from those as a remnant, they had once again become a, a quite estimable people. There's no doubt that most of the inhabitants of Judea at the time of Christ were Edomites. All these cities were forcibly converted to Judaism a hundred years before the crucifixion. From Romans chapter 9, from verse 1, I speak the truth. Among the anointed, I lie not. My conscience bearing with me, bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great, and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen 
in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons, and the honor, and the covenants, and the legislation, and the service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being over all blessed of Yahweh for the ages. Not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. Remember the epistle of Apostle John, where he talks about the enemies of God, and he says, they came out from us, but they were not of us. Paul saying essentially the same thing here while telling us the reason why. Since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel, nor because they are offspring of Abraham, as they claimed, all children, but in Isaac will your offspring be called. That is to say, the children of the flesh. These are not the children of Yahweh, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul gives a very similar discourse in Galatians chapter 3, comparing the children of Ishmael, the children of Esau, and the children of Jacob. Ostensibly, he's doing the same thing here. That is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of Yahweh, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. Indeed, this word of promise, at the appointed time it will come, and it will be a son for Sarah. And not only, but Rebekah also had conceived from one, meaning a promise, by Isaac our father. Then, not yet having been born, nor having performed any good or evil, that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures, not from rituals, but from the calling. To her it was said, the elder will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, and Esau I hated. Paul is telling us that not all those in Israel are Israelites. Paul is telling us the reason for that, because the rest of them are Edomites which is why he is contrasting Jacob and Esau in regards to these people of Judea who are not all Israel. He also tells us for this reason that he cares only for his kinsmen in regards to the flesh or the true genetic Israelites of Judea. Paul goes on to call the Edomites of Judea vessels of destruction and the Israelites vessels of mercy. The only thing that could possibly be wrong with the children of Esau was that Esau had Canaanite wives. There's no other accusation that could be leveled against Esau from Scripture. Yeah, you could talk about his pride or his reliance on the flesh. You could wax eloquently and philosophize about what may have been wrong with Esau, but Paul tells us what was wrong with Esau in the book of Hebrews. It wasn't his pride. It wasn't his arrogance. It wasn't his, his um, 
nonchalant attitude towards his birthright. It was that he was a profane man and a fornicator. That's the reasons Paul gave us. I wouldn't attempt to, to rationalize any worldly reason beyond that. The only reason why the children of Esau could be rejected is that they were half Canaanite. And the Canaanites can be traced back through Scripture to their um, intermingling with the Kenites and the Rephane. And the Kenites and the Rephane can be traced to the race of the fallen angels, that old serpent, the angels that left their first estate, the angels that sinned, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only reason why these people are rejected, because they are genetically corrupt. There are similar statements in Revelation, Revelation of Christ, Revelation 2.9, Revelation 3.9, and to the messenger of the assembly in Smyrna, right? Thus says the first and the last, he who was dead and lives, I know your tribulation, I'm sorry, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are wealthy. And the blasphemy from those saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not, but are of the congregation of the adversary, or the synagogue of Satan. That's more poetic, I understand that. Well, Paul's telling us exactly why. They are of the synagogue of the adversary. And from Revelation 3.9, Behold, I shall give those from of, the syn- from of the congregation of the adversary, saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not, but they are liars. Behold, I shall make them that they shall come and they shall worship before your feet, that they may know that I have loved you. By the time of the writing of the Revelation, Jerusalem was destroyed. But the bad figs and the Edomites of Judea had been spread throughout the Oikumene, the Adamic world, and even beyond that. And were on their way to becoming the reproach, the curse, and the proverb that they were fated to be. And it's a damn shame that we don't, that when I say we in this case, I mean Christianity as a whole, does not recognize these people for what they should be today. When you see a Jew, when you see an Arab, he's a, he, he is a reproach, a curse, and a proverb. For this reason, that these people are collectively Satan. Paul wrote to the Romans around 56 AD and told them that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And he was referring to the, to the impending destruction of Jerusalem. With all of this understanding, we may understand the words of Christ recorded by the Apostle John in John chapter 8 of his gospel, and I'm going to read from verse 33. 
They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And indeed, they were Abraham's seed, as Paul also attests, and as Christ agrees. But they were not through Jacob, and they were not pure. They were Abraham's seed through Esau and through those other people of Judah who were of Canaanite blood. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. And these people claim never to have been in bondage. And Israelites, well, Edomites really can't claim that. But Israelites certainly can't claim that. Yet the Pharisees, over and over again, were reproved because they did not really know the Scripture. The Edomites were in bondage from the time of King David to the Israelites all the way down to the end of the kingdom of Judah, practically. But they didn't even know their own history. Verse 36, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed. He's acknowledging that they came from Abraham. But that doesn't mean that they came from God, just because they were physically descended from Abraham. But ye seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. Now, there is a heresy in Christian identity, which is often repeated, that the original manuscripts say, I know you say you are Abraham's seed. I've seen um, several Christian identity authors write that in a book. I won't name names. This cannot be accepted. It can't be accepted because no record of any such manuscript has ever been produced which has such a reading in Greek, period. There is no record. When the author that claims, I know you say you are Abraham's seed, is in the original Greek, he had better tell us which manuscript and where it is so that we can prove it for ourselves. I've looked at the variant readings on hundreds of Greek manuscripts in the Gospel of John, and I've never seen such a reading in one, or I would be glad to describe it. It says, I know you are Abraham's seed. But you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. He knew they were Abraham's seed. He didn't say that he knew they were Israelites. They were Abraham's seed, but they were not Judeans. They were not Judah. They were not Israel. They were Esau. They may have been Shelah. And there's evidence here that they, they, they may have been both. But there's evidence here which connects them to Shelah, and we'll see that momentarily. Many of them were certainly Edomites, without a doubt, and the historical record demonstrates that, as do the explanations of Paul of Tarsus. 
Christ goes on to say in verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard from God. This Abraham did not. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And here in John 8.41, we have the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi, where those priests in Jerusalem who departed out of the way and who corrupted the covenant of Levi are depicted as having said, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Here Christ refutes their contentions, which are not true. Malachi tells us why they are not true, where he says that Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of, of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. Malachi's words are true of the patriarch Judah. He had a Canaanite wife. They are true of the people of his own time who were taking the women of the land to wives and who were reproved by the priests, by Ezra and by Nehemiah before him. Malachi's words are also true, speaking allegorically of the tribe of Judah, that the people of his time were marrying the daughter of a strange god. And they were also true of Judea, the remnant of Judah at the time of Christ, because they had wed themselves to the Edomites when they absorbed them conquered them and forced them to convert to Judaism. To Judaism. So, so we see that the words are allegorically and prophetically true on two occasions and literally true on one of the patriarch. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded and came forth from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Christ told his own disciples that the spirit of truth was indeed in them, in John chapter 14. Even long before the Pentecost, there was no truth in Cain, because he was not of God. When he speaks a lie, 
he speaks a lie of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. And in John chapter 10, he very plainly told them, you do not believe me, because you are not my sheep. The words for father here, and I've seen people try to do this, people that claim Christian identity to be Christian identity and try to say that the words for father here are spiritual. They're not really anything to do with genetics or, or, or lineage. They can't be spiritualized. To do so is to, to deny the plain meaning of the words, while at the same time, risk the Judeo-Christian insistence on spiritualizing the same words in so many other places where they must be taken literally, such as Romans chapter 4, where Paul tells the Romans, Abraham was their forefather. That can't be spiritualized. Spiritualization of words in the New Testament destroys the context of the book, and you may as well throw your Bible in the trash and go marry a nigger, because it doesn't matter. The words for father cannot be spiritualized here. Christ is repeating the same idea he expressed in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 23, where he spoke of a race, a race responsible for the blood of Abel. You want to spiritualize that too. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. He was the first murderer and the killer of Abel. And he was a devil because, as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, he was from of the wicked one and slaughtered his brother. And with delight he slaughtered him because his deeds were evil, but those of his brother righteous. He didn't say he was the wicked one because he slaughtered his brother. He said he slaughtered his brother because he was of the wicked one. Cain was not of the devil because he was a bad person. Rather, Cain was of the devil and was himself a devil because the law of Yahweh is kind after kind, and Cain was a violation of that law. That's why the descendants of Cain have no part with Christ. They do not have the same origin as Christ. Their origin is of the devil. And if the law of God is kind after kind, then Cain is the son of those fallen angels that fell in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 12. Only in that manner can Christ tell these men who opposed him that God was not their father and that their father was the devil. If Cain was of the devil, it is because he is the son of that Revelation chapter 12 devil, or at least one of them, well, one of the, 
the, the race of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who is also identified with the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. All of these things must be interpreted cohesively. And the only way to interpret them cohesively, while at the same time accepting the definitions of the words, is to understand them genetically. That's all I have to say for tonight. There are going to be subsequent episodes of the series. It might be a few weeks, a month. There are some things I want to do that I'm planning. I want to do a program on um, two-seed line in, in, in the early inscriptions of the Sumerians, Hittites, and Egyptians, and Assyrians, things like that. I, I'm going to um, plan that soon, I pray, Yahweh willing. There's... Um, some things in the Old Testament I have to go through related to the series that have to be done. I have to um, defuse the thought that Lucifer is Satan because Lucifer is not Satan. I have to defuse the thought that the Prince of Tyrus in Ezekiel is Satan because the Prince of Tyrus was not Satan. They were both men. I plan on doing that one day soon. This series will probably get a few more installments. I, I may do other things in relation to it to further cement my position and, and, and explain why I hold these positions. Yahweh willing. I will be here next Friday with my presentation of Romans and the end of chapter 8, and the beginning of Romans chapter 9 again, probably, and, and that's fine. It's an ongoing Bible commentary on Friday nights, so that has to be complete. And um, I will be here next Friday with that. Next Saturday, I'm thinking of returning to Martin Luther for a few weeks while I prepare my, um, my, my German origins papers for presentations in in, in these programs, in podcasts. So hopefully I'll be able to do that this summer. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.